Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins, and I'm here, whatever here exactly means, virtually <laughs> online with my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Murison Bowie. Hello, Barney. That was a deep basso sort of sound. <laughs> it's great to be quote unquote here with you. I am seeing both of you on my laptop screen and you are seeing me on yours. This is all very strange. This is the first time we are recording a podcast episode online. Who's Zooming Who is a song <laughs> title that comes to mind. So bear with us. This may be a little rough around the edges, but we thought we would try to resurrect the RBP podcast online. And today we're going to be talking about Miles Davis's Bitches Brew. We're going to be talking about Warren Zevon. We're going to be talking about featured writer Lois Wilson. This is podcasting in a time of coronavirus. As will be obvious, we've just learned we've lost two more musicians that we are aware of. Having lost Manu Dibango last week, we've just lost Adam Schlesinger of Fountains of Wayne and Christina of Z Records fame. So these are very worrying and disturbing times. Barney, additionally, uh, Ellis Masalis, father of Winton and Bramford, has died as well of coronavirus. I didn't even know that. Yeah. That's the first time hearing of it. Sad. I imagine you know, there will be there will be more more people that we're going to lose in the coming days and weeks. We thought we would start by talking about the week's new audio. Warren Zevon once wrote a song called Splendid Isolation, and perhaps if he was still with us, he might do a kind of remix version of that called Splendid Self-Isolation. Mark, tell us... <laughs> Tell us about the Zevon audio. When when was it recorded and who by? Yeah, May 2000, Adam Sweeting interview. First of all, let me say it's terrific because Warren Zevon, Zevon you know, was obviously a very complicated guy. By this time, he had been sober for some years. Has that made him a nicer person? You're probably better qualified to answer that myself, Barney. But He's so interesting. He's such a bright, engaging man. Well, shall we go straight into a clip? Because one of the Why first not? things he talks about is getting older, about ageing as a subject, and sort of just he riffs around the whole notion of, of, of his age and, and so on and so forth. Shadows are falling and I'm running out of breath Keep me in your heart for a while I don't think the subject is... I don't think of my subject as aging so much. You know, what I've always said is that I've had children since I was barely an adult. So I've always been an old guy. In my own life, <laughs> yeah. I've always been Papa. So it, it never... I think you have to be a kind of stupid to wake up one day and be shocked to find a year old, you know. There are little shocks every day. <laughs> we all know about them, but it wasn't so much aging. as so, uh, I think it has more to do with death. Well, you think about it more. Hmm? You think about it more. Timor Mortis Condorbot Me. You know that poem? No. You're from The Guardian, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> That's the intellectual paper, isn't it? Uh, well, it's, got, it's got a bit more adolescent these days. Well, haven't we all? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I love that. You're from the Guardian. I know. It's, it's, it's fabulous. <laughs> it, it really is great. He's so engaging throughout this. I mean, one thing he says a lot, which you don't often hear people, particularly pop musicians, when I'm being interviewed, say, he says, I don't know. You know, he, he'll be asked something, and if he doesn't know, he says, I don't know. Fair play. Which is, is great, because most people don't. Most people try and fill the gap, you know, with bullshit, and he just doesn't do that, which, no, is, which is no. really interesting. He talks again, and we'll play a clip at the end of the podcast, talk about Jackson Brown. And that's partly in the context of is Zevon dark while is Jackson Brown kind of light? And Jackson Brown talks about him being a moralist. And so that, that's a really interesting riff. He talks about not being commercial, which, you know, I mean, he had some success. And as a songwriter, he certainly had some massive success with a couple of songs. But he talks about his youth in L.A. being infatuated with Dylan, kind of growing up with the birds and Buffalo Springfields and all that sort of stuff. Uh, let's play another clip here. He talks about his association with Geffen, David Geffen, and that scene and not being part of a scene. It was a good time to be a songwriter, but in all modesty, I was a good songwriter. So I remember uh, Glenn Fry calling me and saying, "Oh, Geffen called me and put Glenn Fry on." He said, "You got a shitload of those songs like Hazen Down the Wind." I, I thought I would have, <laughs> and then Linda Ronstadt did it, and then you know. It was, uh, it was a good time. Yeah. I didn't know all those people as well as, as popular myth would like to believe everybody knows everybody. Yeah. yeah. I knew Jackson and Souther better than anybody. There's a story about David Geffen saying he didn't want to have any more people than he could get in his sauna, wasn't there? That was a kind of famous David Geffen story. I was never in David Geffen's sauna. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's very dry, isn't he? Yeah, he, he really is. I mean, he's very interesting. Is, is and actually, you get the sense. I mean, Barney, you and I have both read the, the the biography, or the oral history that his ex-wife that, that, put that, together, that's and all... it sustained the exercise in masochism. Really, it was called "I'll Sleep When I'm Dead." That's right. Which is one of his most famous songs. Yes, you get the sense throughout reading that, and in this interview, that he never was part of those scenes. He was a close friend of Jackson Brown, and that was about as close as he got to all of that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But he does have a sort of mythical image. He sort of, I mean, you use the term Zevon-esque on the podcast quite often. So there must <laughs> well, be something that he Almost about, anything. Yeah, about, about anything. You know, Those like, cornflakes that really Zevon-esque. You, you know, the, the, the weather today is dead Zevon-esque. <laughs> Grey? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> no, but 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 there's this sense that he was sort of everywhere in some, you know, he was he's in lots of different places doing different things. There's a sense that I get from hearing you talk about him. So there's a sort of legend of Zevon, if you will. Well, I think the thing about Warren Zevon is that he was a bit of a fly in the ointment in that LA scene. Mm -hmm. In other words, you know, whether Jackson Brown is dark or not dark, whether the Eagles are dark or not dark, Zevon 
was, I mean, the best way I can put it is to say he is a bit like the kind of Elvis Costello of the scene. Yeah, he, yeah. Was, he was really savage in his lyrics. He was more literate than any of them. He was definitely cleverer than almost any of them. He had a very noir vision of American life. Yeah, sure. And I think he was, I mean, he's one of my heroes. I always regret never having interviewed him. I think he wrote like 30 or 40 really amazing songs. I mean, they're, in, in some ways, they're quite conventionally sort of structured within, within the rock idiom, but he's just got something. I think he should have been a huge star, but in many ways, he was too clever for his own good. Sure. Mm. Yeah. You know. I mean, g- going back to this, of course, he had his enormous problems with his substance and alcohol abuse. And he talks about that. He talks about being sober, about his health, about therapy and addiction. You know, again, very interestingly. And again, he uses the term, I don't know, to a lot of the questions that are asked, which is much more honest than to bullshit your way through it. He talks about his parents, his father basically being a gangster, which is yeah. pretty interesting. Worked for Mickey Cohen, though. That's, the, that's right. You know, scary shit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he talks about no songwriting. No wonder he had a noir vision. <laughs> 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 no surprises there. I know, it's, it's pretty amazing. He talks about songwriting. He talks about not liking talking about it. Mm, yeah. And he talks also about writing in collaboration with others, which we don't really think about in terms of him a lot. But he did write a lot in collaboration, particularly at this time, this point in his life. Jorge Calderon was uh, contributed a lot to, to what he did. And also Carl Hyerson. Yeah, that's right. And Thomas McGuane, he co-wrote yeah. with them. He even co-wrote, I think he wrote a couple of songs with Springsteen, who pops up on, on his album. Before all that, though, I did learn this from his Wikipedia page. Apparently, he was briefly, in his teenage years, a student of Igor Stravinsky. Yeah. Ah, yes, he does mention this, actually, very briefly in this, in this interview. It's almost a passing thing. You almost don't notice it. But he does talk about Kind of that. remarkable, I think. And he does talk about the Carl Hyacinth thing. He said it's all about getting on the phone and saying, you know, give me three stanzas, you mm-hmm. know. <laughs> yeah. And kind of getting him back from Hyacinth, yeah. which is fantastic stuff. Right. And also, interesting that those are the people he associates with. He's hanging out with the sort of fairly noir writers rather mm-hmm. than the noir songwriters, you know. And in the Stravinsky connection... Jasper, he, I mean, Sweeting asked him whether he can actually like write charts and, and proper arrangements, and he can. I mean, you know, he was a, a schooled musician, a trained musician. And even mm-hmm. though in a lot of his songs you, you might say are quite conventional three or four chord songs, I always think there's interesting things going on there musically as well as, well as lyrically. Yeah. Another thing I like yeah. about the audio, I'm mean, so thrilled just to have a Warren Zevon audio on Rock's Back Pages Great. for the first time. So thank you, Adam Sweeting. One of the things I love about it is that it, is, it takes place in London and his most famous song, or at least probably his only hit of any description, is Werewolves of London. So here he <laughs> is, a werewolf in London, having tea with Adam Sweeting at the Sanderson Hotel in Soho, which has only just opened. And you can hear the kind of, you can hear the teacups chinking. And of course, he's only three years away from dying. And it's fascinating to hear him talk about death. The album that he's just released at this point, Life Will Kill You, Life Will Kill You, is already shot through with sort of premonitions of death. He was Mm -hmm. unflinching and rare in being willing to confront his own mortality. And then, of course, you know, he released this absolutely brilliant, heartbreaking last album, The Wind, which is he knows he's going to die in a few months. Right. 
and 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 everybody as on his first album this extraordinary cast list of the great and the good come by and overdub backing vocals or guitar parts and it's just a wonderful record two of my favorite zevon records life or killia and this last one the wind i think it's a it, it's terrific listening to the audio even if you're not a, a big zevon fan i think it's he's just extraordinary such a great mind. You're just listening to a really interesting person yeah. talking about really interesting stuff. You know. With a really dry sense of humour as well, very which, dry I, which sense I very of... much enjoy. I really like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. He's, he, it Good. slightly reminds me of like either Lou Reed or Frank Zappa, but just a slightly nicer version. I mean, I can imagine Zevon being pretty withering, but he's not disdainful in the way that, say, Lou Reed would have been. Mm. No, that's that's right. I mean, like, the way he gently mocks sweeting, you're a guardian. <laughs> I know. <you> yeah. <laughs> well, you can imagine Lou Reed saying exactly the same thing, but in a in a in a way that would really have put the interview yes. down. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. Well, look. So as you say, Mark, we'll we'll hear the the last clip. Yeah. And talking very amusingly about Jackson Brown, who was kind of his mentor in the outro. But we're, mm. we're now going to move on to Miles Davis. Now, I picked this simply because it is, whatever it is, 50 years since Indeed. Bitches Indeed. Brew. So I thought, you know, you guys being jazz bows, jazz buffs, we could talk a bit about that. I think we all saw that pretty great Miles Doco. I haven't seen it yet, day. but it is oh, okay. on my list. So, but it's I definitely want to see list. it. Your, your Ooh, lockdown dark. bucket list. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, you know, certainly it's, it's on. Yeah, we'll watch it. I'm looking forward to it very much. Guys, Bitches Brew. Mark, yeah. give, give me just a quick quick capsule on, on Bitches Well, I mean... First of all, a bit of context. And one of the sad things about documentaries, yes. they skate over this, is that the previous full album he'd done was In a Silent Way, which was the first album he did with substantial amounts of electronic instruments and so on and so forth, with electric guitars, electric keyboards, so on and so forth. And it, it, it's a kind of like, it's a, Bitches Brew is kind of a wilder, more extreme extension of what he started with in a silent way. It, it's distinctly funkier in places. It's actually quite mad in place. Yeah, it's pretty wild. It's also extraordinarily beautiful. I was very lucky that our colleague and contributor to Rock's Back Pages, Simon Witter, who's got the greatest surround sound system I've ever heard in my life, got from this Japanese quadraphonic mix of bitches brood and the original quadraphonic mix and the, the trumpet hung like a bell in the middle of the room you know while that all this amazing. stuff was going on around it it's a sensational record i mean he made a whole bunch of sensational records around that time oh, yeah. the tribute to jack johnson the jack johnson movie soundtrack fantastic Brilliant. on the corner shortly after a lot of people hated it at the time i think it stands up as a great record is this Miles at his best as an electronic jazz rock musician? I think it probably is. I mean, you know, as a sort of fusion, if you want to use that word, yeah, yeah. musician, I think I think it to me it's his sort of most strident statement of that period. It's just sure. here I am, listen to me again. Because he kind of he had been his popularity was had fallen quite a lot. Oh yeah. His stock had fallen basically in, in jazz terms because he 
he was like what 40 at the time 41 yeah yeah so you know he wasn't one of the hip young cats anymore so that's right i mean he was in a process of reinvention i mean first of all his by this point ex-wife betty davis had got him out of his Italian suits and into caftans and this sort of stuff, you know. And a Mexican tailor as well, he, <laughs> who she went to. She'd got him listening to Jimi Hendrix, all of the sort of and stuff. she'd introduced him to Jimi Hendrix as well, and they they talked around 69, that kind of time. And the sly and the family stone as well that he... Very he much, being very, very, very much indeed. Of course, Beth Davis actually shagged Jimi Hendrix, much to Mars's chagrin. She denies it, she denies it. <laughs> who knows? But I mean, I, I think you're right, you can't understate the importance of Betty Davis. She was a big, big influence on him, yeah. without a doubt. Um, then you've got these great musicians. I mean, John McLaughlin, who'd been on The Silent Way, is, is all over Bitches Brew. Joe Zawinul's over uh, Bitches Brew. I believe she careers there. Is it Jack DeJanette drumming or is it Tony Williams? I think it's Jack, Jack DeJanette. Jack yeah. Yeah. And then, just, and then the just... extraordinary sound of Benny Maupin's or yes. Maupin's. I assume it must be Maupin's bass clarinet. That's right. Which is, which right. is such a distinct Kind of well, note in it. It's also a kind of a jazz's nod to Eric Dolphy, who was the great mm-hmm. bass clarinet player. And who Miles had been rude here. about, had really had dissed yeah. Oh, yeah. in a rather uh, rather um, odd way. Miles being rude about someone didn't mean that he didn't actually kind of dig what they were doing in one way. <laughs> Miles was just rude. Miles was just a rude individual. Full stop. I mean, one thing there's a writer I'm trying to get hold of for Roxback Pages, who wrote for the San Francisco Examiner, and. He reviews Mars Davis supporting the Grateful Dead at the Fillmore West in 1970. You know, interestingly enough, actually, the only band Mars has any time for of that period that he played with was the Grateful Dead because he could see that they were trying to do something as an improvising band. But they were mortified. They all knew, they all thought Mars Davis was just fantastic. What is he doing supporting them at the Fillmore mm. West? But this writer, who I will introduce once we get him on board, says that half the audience got up and left after Mars is set. Right. So Bitches Brew really pulled them back into the the broader scene, you know. And it really a, sold as well. I mean, you know, it yeah. was a real commercial success, which is kind of remarkable when you listen to it now. You're like, this sold 500,000 records you yeah, know, yeah. in a year? It's like, what, what's going on here? And I think that's... Th- no, mm-hmm. that, that's right, Jasper, that's absolutely right. There's a great story. The, the one thing is, is that typically of all Mars' sessions around that time, he basically would come in with like maybe two or three little bits of paper with a few notes on it. And, and sort of like direct the band and starting to jam on this stuff. And they'd play for ages. And without any apparent direction from Miles, beyond a few hand gestures and so on and so forth, Joe Zawinul and John McLaughlin are standing outside the studio in the corridor, looking at each other going, what the fuck was that? What the hell was going on? I don't know what was going on. They're talking to each yeah. other. Three months later, or two months later, Zabel's in the CBS offices in the, the Black Rock building in New York, and he has this fantastic music coming out of someone's hi-fi system in one of the offices. He races and says, what's this? And they're saying, it's you, man. This is Bitches Brew. This is the Mars album. And he's, he's, he was staggered. He had no idea that anything that good was coming out of the sessions at the time. So we've, right. we've got three pieces on the homepage this week, two almost inevitably by Richard Williams, yeah. who unsurprisingly welcomed this new direction, this new sound, mm-hmm. supercharged kind of jazz funk rock sound, which still sounds startling after 50 years. Yeah.
So he reviewed the album for Melody Maker in June 70. He also talked to Dave Holland about his experience of working with Miles, particularly on that album. So he starts his review with this short paragraph, forget labels, categories, pigeonholes, influences and directions when you listen to Bitches Brew. In fact, forget everything and the music Mm -hmm. will sweep you away into some kind of never-never land like an oral acid trip. The third piece is absolutely irresistible. It's the late, great Al Aronovitz hanging out with Miles at the top of the gate, which was the the basement (laughs) below the village gate. Miles is doing two sets there. Jasper, you you mentioned Miles's not suffering fools gladly and uh, his his sort of core rudeness. And and this is just, just fantastic. He sort of says, you got to stop thinking like a white man. He rasps out. Al mentions how he looks, which is the, the new wardrobe. You've alluded to that, you know, yeah. uh, which, which is fascinating. He asks him about this flesh wound he'd suffered in a shooting with a holdup that he'd that he'd, he'd actually been shot, not in a sort of serious way. Uh, Miles goes, it wasn't as bad as getting hit over the head by a white cop. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of that, you know. And then finally, this great, at the end he goes, I think, you know, Miles always had a slight issue and slight guilt about having grown up actually pretty privileged for for an African-American. And he says in a rather sort of terse way, you don't learn how to play better from suffering. Blues don't come from picking cotton. Blues is a white man's word. Jazz is a white man's word, which I think is is actually quite an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, Miles at this point is in, you know, full-on sort of black power mode, 1970. This is is October 70. Yeah, and suffering, certainly not suffering white <laughs> But Al, Al Aronovitz knew him and had, you know, had that kind of entree and could go over to his table and just start up a conversation with him. So it's a really interesting little vignette. Yeah, Barney, but, you know, you've got to remember, Miles always worked with white musicians, whether it's Bill Evans, whether it's Bill Evans. Yeah. Mike going, Stern Jer- later. Jerry yeah. Mulligan, yeah. you know, going right back. You know, that mm-hmm. he was absolutely no racist when it came to who could play the music, you know. I mean, and that, that you know, a lot of his stuff was very justifiable. I mean, he got busted outside while waiting to play a set outside, was it Birdland or somewhere, yeah. you know. That's where he, he got he, hit by the white cop. That's right. Mm. You know, he, he, he struggled with the white authority figures, but he himself was no racist. I have absolutely no doubt about it. No, I think just at this point, like Hendrix, like a lot of major black figures in American music, he kind of felt obliged to some degree. Yeah, maybe. To, yeah. to, to sort of, yeah, to, to make... To make that that point, you know, the, the black powers and the ascendant, the Black Panthers, were marching in the streets. Sure. Like he felt he felt some sense of obligation and responsibility. Anyway, fantastic, Bitches Brew. One last fact yeah, about Bitches please, Brew: it was going to be called Witches Brew. Apparently, Miles was going to call it Witches Brew until it was Betty Davis that said you should call it Bitches Brew. Wow. Top fact, Jasper. I know. Yeah. Good, isn't it? Yeah. But I yeah. think that's interesting because because there is a sort of slight, you know, the, the connotations of the word bitch is there's yeah, a sort yeah. of slight like, well, is this is this a yeah. slightly sexist album title? But actually knowing that it comes from her and knowing that it was kind of almost like her saying, Go for it and, and I yeah. think this would be more powerful to call it this. I think that's gives it a different a different vibe to me at least. And I and I like that. Well, sure. I mean, would she suggest that? 
change of title now or yeah, 50 actually, years knowing later? Best David, knowing Bess Davis, yes, yeah. probably would. Um, well, no, I mean, you think about hip-hop album titles. You think about the way women's, people like the Nicki Minaj's and so on and so forth, yeah. how they present themselves and talk themselves. Bits of bitches out of her mouth or out of anyone else's mouth would be perfectly acceptable today. Yeah, Coming, and she you know, uses the word bitch in her own songs, but but the point the is time. this is a Miles Davis album, so it, it's slightly different in context. There's actually a doco about Betty Davis, isn't there? I don't yes, know you, it's very good. Is that on Netflix? I'm not sure, but it's very good. Uh, is it called They Sound Different? I think you know, I can't be. remember anything, yeah. Barney. You're asking questions that I simply... <laughs> that sounds plausible to me. That was one of her <laughs> album titles. So. Do you want us to remind you who we are? Yeah, yes, please. So, at a sort of midway <laughs> point in the pod. Yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. your colleague, Barney Hoskin. Yeah. And... Who am I again? <laughs> Okay. Right, Thank on. you, gentlemen. Moving on, just um, we, so the, the week's featured writer is Lois Wilson, who came on board uh, relatively recently. Lois has been a mainstay at Mojo for a long time, and also one of the best writers on particularly Black American music. To sort mm-hmm. of pick up from that, where we just left off, she's written dozens of features, some of which we picked for this week. She has, actually, well, well, obviously, Dusty Springfield isn't black. That goes without saying, but as close to as one can imagine, a white singer from that era being. So she wrote this great account of the making of Dusty in Memphis for Mojo in 2011, and that's featured free on the homepage. It's really thorough. She talks to a lot of people who haven't talked about Dusty or Atlantic Records or American studios in Memphis, where certainly most of the instrumental tracks were recording, and where, of course, as you will both know, where Dusty froze when producer Jerry Wexler reminded her that Aretha Franklin had stood at that very microphone. That was actually in New York, because oh, that's, okay. where, that's where Aretha recorded her vocals, you know. But but yes, you know, I mean, one of the less happy bits of production talk. One can... <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. I don't think Jerry realised just how sort of undermining that would, that would yeah. feel. But there's interesting stuff, uh, a man called Jerry Greenberg, who I, I once interviewed, who sort of was Wexler's right-hand man, talks about how they assembled a 100 songs for Dusty to consider and they would mm-hmm. go pour through all these songs whether they were like real building songs or, or or soul classics and I think they sent a hundred songs over to London for Dusty to, and she rejected all of them <laughs> <laughs> that's great I love that that's confidence as well that's like no 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 exactly and, and then apparently Wexler claimed that after after prevailing upon her for, for many hours. She did finally accept the Bacharach David song In the Land of Make Believe, which Dionne Warwick had done, and that was included, I think, wasn't it, on the on the final track listing. But it, it is a fantastic record. I think we all record. love Dusty in Memphis. You know, who I mean, doesn't interesting, really? Interesting enough, that Son of a Preacher Man had been turned down by Aretha Franklin before Dusty did it. Because she was the daughter of a preacher man. Quite possibly. So Dusty does it and has this huge hit, and then Aretha covers it, and, you know, it's not anywhere near as good as Dusty's no. version. No, mm. no, no, absolutely. Even though we all think, you know, Aretha's the great goddess of R&B singing, but no, anyway. The only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. Could ever teach me what the son of a preacher may see what he 
Well, so that's Dusty in Memphis. And another of the pieces we've picked is an interview that she did with Georgie Fame Georgia. from 2015. It is a retrospective on Georgie. She talks to him about how he became Georgie Fame, inevitably thanks to Larry Palms. He's, <laughs> he's, he says, Palms he says somewhere, I think he says in the interview, you know, he got one of he got one of Larry Palms' awful names. Yes, I had to have one of his awful names. Larry <laughs> said, if you don't use my name, I won't use you in my show. He describes Fame describes Larry Pons as a cold fish, ruthless and intimidating, and says that she tried to seduce him like he tried to seduce most of the pretty boys in his stable. He doesn't say whether Larry succeeded (laughs) or not. Well, he does. He says, he says, I whacked him across the wrist and got the hell out of there. So, oh, good. You're absolutely right. He does. He does say that. So, whether that's true or not, well, yeah, well, is another matter. But horrible situation. Oh, I mean, to end you know, up in. you're of a certain vintage, and you will probably have a better take <laughs> on Georgie Fame than even I would. Tell, no, tell me what Georgie Fame meant to you in the sixties. Well, well, in the sixties. Cheesemonger. I mean, the thing is, his released records and his hit records, uh, outside of Yeah Yeah, which was a pretty funky bit of R&B. Which was 1965, wasn't it? I guess, somewhere around that. He did some pretty grim stuff and actually has continued all his life to do a certain percentage of grim stuff. And it's really only in retrospect I realised what a cool guy he was. He had a fantastic band, mostly made up of jazzers, earning a living playing R&B. They were, what, house band at the Flamingo? Correct. The Flamingo Club yeah. for a long time. The Flamingo was a really interesting place where in those days, in the 60s, England and, well, the British Isles, but particularly England, was dotted with American air bases and American army bases. Some of it a holdover from the Second World War, some of it the current Cold War sort of thing. And all these black servicemen would come into London every weekend on, their, on, on leave and they would go to the Flamingo. It was a place where black American servicemen watched people like Georgie Fame trying to play their music. Yeah. And, to, and to get away with it and succeed in front of a tough audience like that was really significant. You know, and he did. He had great musicians as band. I mean, Mitch Mitchell, of course, came out of Georgie Fame straight into the Jimi Hendrix experience, you know. So a really interesting guy. But his records, his hit records, I said, yeah, yeah, it's a great record. But... Most of the other stuff is, uh, yeah. And also he became a kind of middle-of-the-road institution in the 70s, yeah. didn't he? With him and Alan Price, you yeah. know, they were very much part of the sort of light entertainment universe. Yeah. And then... Many years after that, he became a core part of Van Morrison's band, which so that's was right. interesting. And I think did an, an album with Van. It's a sort yeah. of co, you know, kind yeah. of co-headline album. No, I mean, them. you know, Georgie Fame is a kind of extraordinary combination of cheese and deep funk, you know. Cheese and deep funk on rye. <laughs> but I do have an awful lot of time for him, you know. And he was just a substantial guy. Without him, I mean, people like Everyone talks about Cyril Davis and those guys as like the people who really drove the British R&B scene. But actually, it was Georgie Fame first of all. They all followed. I mean, people like Cyril Davis really were trying to be Georgie Fame, including 
Cyril Davis adopting the Hammond organ, for example. Yeah, yeah, it was an yeah, absolute yeah. aping Georgie fame, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, no, really a good guy. What I like about the interview by Lois Wilson is that at the end, for someone called Fame, he goes, <laughs> he's still trying to stay out of the spotlight. I don't try and flash myself and say, this is the great me. I just say that this is the way I like it. This is the way it's going to be. Of the future, he says, I'd like to end up in a quiet restaurant or a bar on my own, singing to a handful of people. That would capture the essence of this whole thing. But to then be called fame, I think, is a lovely irony. I'm talking of Cyril Davis. Did either of you see the Eel Pie documentary? Not yet, no. Okay, I did happen to watch it, and I thought it was rather amateurishly made, but it's worth seeing the story of Eel Pie Island and the hotel where, you know, essentially was the sort of birthplace of British blues and and, and rhythm and blues, or at least as as important as the Flamingo. Sure. BBC Four, yeah. Worth seeing if you have any interest in that era, even if a lot of the music was, frankly, shit. (laughs) Um, (laughs) To be be honest. Let's let's move on, Mark, to, uh, you know, the new pieces in the library for RBP subscribers. Sure. Well, and the first bit is 1968. Max Jones sees... O.C. Smith play the Revolution Club. The Revolution Club was one of the trendy watering holes of that period. And there's this great quote because this is just like going to see a show these days. He says, A man on my right argued rather loudly through the first three songs, and a decorative young lady at the table in front of me talked throughout the act. Now, this is the bane of our lives now. You know, you go and see a band and people just talk constantly through it, you know. Mm. So this is 1968 Mm. and Max Jones is grinding his teeth about this, which I I think I I, I rather love. So perhaps those rose-tinted glasses that it it wasn't ever, nobody ever talked in gigs back in the old days aren't quite Well, well, that's actually not true. The fact is that this was a club where, this is the club where the sort of club goers would be there, right? Mm. So... Sure. It, it's a slightly artificial situation. But in a way, that's what every show's like now, because it's a night out for people rather than going to see the band. People are going for a night out, which is much closer to these people going to this club at that time than it was in those days going to see a band play. Yeah? Yeah. You see yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Slight, I see what distinction I'm making there. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> 1971, Phil Symes, Disc Music Echo, interviewing Elton John. Now, this is pretty interesting because... Elton, though, just become a big star. Tumbleweed Connection was his most recent album release. So this is kind of what we, Barney, I'm sure you and I would regard as early Elton. You know? Yes, just about acceptable Elton. Just about acceptable. Well, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Uh, anyway, um, but he had just started dressing up. You know, this is this is the thing. He is really going to America. He had done his first America tour. Had just literally, it was only a few months before, the, just as a previous year, had, had had his massive show at the Troubadour in Los Angeles, which really broke him through in America. And he says, I always wanted to wear outrageous clothes, but couldn't. So since I lost weight, I've been ostentatiously dressed. You know, I mean, but, but this is a guy... Who, it's interesting because you have to read between the lines of this because he wasn't out gay at the time, you know. So we read now these old interviews with Elton John in the light of everything that's happened and been revealed subsequently about him. But no, he's, he, he comes up very, very well in this interview. He says about his name, I nicked Elton from Elton Dean, a sax player who I believe played with Georgie Fame, going back to our previous yeah. stuff. Yeah, I nicked Elton, for Elton Dean, who was in the group at the time. John was the only other name we could think of. We didn't like it, but no one could come up with anything else. Even now I'm not, not used to the name. <laughs> <laughs> it's good stuff. 
Next piece, Melody Maker 74. And this, I personally, I find this fascinating. This is Chris Welch interviewing Billy Cobham. And this ah. is just after the first iteration of the Mahavishnu Orchestra had broken up. And Billy Cobham, you know, he doesn't really kind of like, you know, first of all, he says about how he didn't like the stuff, playing the stuff live was becoming less and less comfortable because they were playing faster and faster. He said, I think we played Birds of Fire one and a half times as fast as it was played in record, at least. What's wrong with my tape recorder? You know, but he's pretty withering about his ex-employer. He says, there are certain selfish ways about people that you just don't cancel out by, for instance, with all respect to him, putting on a white suit and finding a guru master. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, saucer of cream for table 12. The interesting thing is, a, a, a few months back, I also found an interview with Rick Laird, the bass player of the Malfishman Orchestra, from the same time. And he talks about the same, th- the same thing, exactly the same thing. And they talk about the Trident Sessions, which are now have been re- released. They were doing their third album, and everything fell to pieces in a really nasty sort of way. Mm-hmm. And the thing that comes out about this is that actually John McLaughlin, in those days, was a fairly self-righteous bloke you know, who thought that his Sri Chinoy Hindu religiosity sort of somehow gave him a free pass. It's fascinating stuff. It's a really, really interesting interview. And Colin's an interesting drummer as well. I mean, you know, the very, very virtuosic yeah. and but with a lot of attack and power he played of. he played for james brown at times he recorded for james brown at times you know he wasn't one of the great drummers with james brown but that no. but his roots were in funk as much as they were in anything else mm. i remember buying birds of fire so when it I. came out sort of thinking <laughs> thinking i probably should i don't and i never really took to it but there is a track on i think the inner mounting flame the previous record yeah. As it called, you know, you know, which yeah, is so, just yeah, sensational. Yeah. So there, I mean, are, there are moments that, that speak to me. Yeah, I, 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 it's 1973, 72, 73, those records were coming out, wasn't it? I yeah. was at boarding school, my brief period at boarding school, and the Mavish Orchestra were on television quite a few times. There were a couple of BBC oh. Two jazz programmes, and they would be doing like a live set for the BBC. Yeah. And... I just thought they were sensational. So I raced out and bought In the Mounting Flame when it came out, bought Birds of Fire when it came out. And then at some point, like the scales fell from my eyes. And it's like, right. actually, no, this is pretty ghastly. It's wankery, isn't it, really? A lot of it is real wankery. Yeah. Yeah, there's a handful of tracks where there's some real beauty going. They do a yeah. really beautiful take on Miles Davis' Miles Beyond on Birds of Fire, I think. There are two or three songs where they actually something musical is really happening. And the rest of it is this kind of pseudo-ecstatic, endless climaxes and you know everyone's screaming up towards the ceiling. Yeah. And it just wears you out and it's really boring. And then about a year later, I saw the second iteration of the Mahavishnu Orchestra playing, supporting the Allman Brothers Band and the Doobies at Nebworth. And I fell asleep and I woke up to hear the sound of John McLaughlin's guitar being panned from one side of the, the, the PA system to the other. Went straight Presumably you were on acid at the time. I wasn't, actually. No, I, 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 I'd forsworn the psychedelics at that time forsworn. in my life. <laughs> forsworn. What a word. Very noble of you. <laughs> Next, Bringo. Yeah, Jesse Winchester, interviewed by Jim Sullivan, Boston Globe, 1982. Now, Jesse Winchester famously, well, you know, was a draft dodger, went to Canada to avoid being drafted in the Vietnam War. 
And that sort of means that everyone sort of perceives him as being a sort of political radical. And he absolutely has nothing to do with this. He says, I'm not a radical in any sense of the word. I'm a conservative. I have no intentions of stretching any limits. I can't stand avant-garde art of any kind, musical, literary. I like traditional things. Even though, you know, he, he has this so reputation. So why didn't he serve in Vietnam then? Because he didn't want to get killed, probably. Oh, right, OK. You think those two things are not mutually exclusive, those two positions? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's conservative with a small C, yeah, I think, Yes, but he, he actually, in the interview, he makes it quite clear that it's actually a slightly bigger C. Mm. Not he's a fascinating room. man, I must say. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of a fan. He's, he's a very unusual singer-songwriter yeah. from that period, so it's interesting to read this. Yeah. I had hoped, because he was on Bearsville, I, right. I had an email exchange with him before he died because I wanted to interview him for my book, Small Town Talk, and sure. unfortunately he died before I could do that. But I, I was really genuinely interested to know about his relationship with that label yeah. He wrote some really interesting, quirky yeah, yeah. songs. Yeah, yeah. The first album, of course, Mark, was produced by Robbie Robertson. He that, was that's, kind of that, like that's a protege right. of Robbie's. Yeah, I mean, in fact, the, the, it wasn't very well produced. I mean, that's the thing is that actually his records don't sound very good. They actually kind of sound fairly homemade. I quite like the first. I yeah. like the sound of the first one because um, it is. It's, it does sound like it was made in his kitchen. Uh, I, my fir- my first introduction was via Chili Willin Red Hot Peppers covering Midnight Bus, which okay. was uh, I think a terrific song of his. Yeah. You know, and our colleague Martin Collier was a, had owned most of Jess's albums when we were at art school together in the seventies. So you know, I was I was pretty familiar with this stuff. Okay. Can't say I, I sort of absolutely loved it, but no, you know, interesting guy. But definitely interesting, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, cool. That's, that's great to have. I mean, we've got quite a few Jesse Winch. And in fact, at some point in the not-too-distant future, we will be adding an audio interview with yes. Jesse by John Tobler. Absolutely. So we, can, that, we can actually hear what he has to say sure. about not being a radical. And Tobler, <laughs> yeah, and Tobler's absolutely the right person to interview him because he's... He was a yeah, zigzag fixture, was Very, very um, much. Yeah. yeah, completely. What's next? Agnes Barnell, being interviewed by Caroline Southern, Melody Maker, 1985. Now, I don't know much about Agnes Barnell, but she was basically a sort of ca- arty cabaret singer. Is that yeah, sort she of was. correct? But she comes over really nicely in this. So she says, I've had singing teachers come up and saying, let me teach you for free. I tell them I've spent years unlearning technique, which is something that I really get because I've done the same thing as a guitar player, becoming an improvising guitar player. You do have to unlearn stuff sometimes to sort of make any progress. Mm. And she says, my daughter played me all her records. That's her daughter's records. And said, now, Mama, that's you too. That's Thompson Twins. That's Madonna. And I said, darling, they all sound exactly alike. <laughs> I, I, I just I just liked. She was a great character. She was on, yeah. I think, the Imp label or Demon. That's right. One of those Elvis Costello labels. At precisely this time when this interview was. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I made her single, whatever the, 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 the first single was, I think I, I remember making it single of the week. And oh, all yeah? I can remember is it had this fantastic line in it. It was very, very dark cabaret noir type sure. sort of music and there was a line about about father lies dead on the ironing board reeking <laughs> of something and drambui and it was it was just absolutely wow. brilliant but i'm afraid that's all i remember about Agnes Burnell. But she's a great character and it's great to have a piece about her yeah no I, I was very pleased and i really enjoyed the interview i mean she comes over wonderfully 
A father's lying dead on the ironing board And he reeks of lux and rambouille If the holy man keeps underneath my dress I'll be rich Okay, the next piece is Adam Sweeting in The Guardian, September 1990. And the primary review, he also reviews an album by Kinsey Report very briefly, but the main review is Neil Young's Ragged Glory, which I think is a fantastic record. A real return to Neil Young and Crazy Horse form. Sweeting says, This bunch can still make one of rock's great noises, one fumbled after by generations of imitators. On the face of it, songs as basic as White Line, Ennio Morricone meets MC5, or the narcotically addled Mansion on the Hill are just a garage band in heat, big kids rattling the neighbours with a barrage of amplification. But when Young goes native like this, he's operating from a different plane of consciousness. This is pig simple music in which the chord of G7 sounds avant-garde. But only these four people, and the late Danny Whitten, have ever been able to do it. Together they generate a collective psychosis which simply scares off any competition. In the supercharged theme of over and over, or the brute riffing of fucking up, you hear the simple physical exhilaration of playing in perfect sync at shattering volume. And I think that really catches this record. It is a pretty great... I mean, I know you've always been a, a great fan of that, and I love it too. It, it, is, it is both ragged and glorious, is it not? <laughs> I mean, it's an interesting... Nice. It's kind of so, you know, Neil starts that decade. It's 1990, yes, isn't right, it? That's right, yeah. He starts this decade very much going back into sort of full-blown crazy horse mode after trying so many different experiments in the 80s and failing at most of them, you know, whether it's whether it's sort of vocoder electronica sure. or, or Reaganite country music, <laughs> uh, horrible sort of synth rock AOR. I mean, everything he tried just was was for the most part, it was pretty horrible. And then it's kind of like, well, why don't we just go back to what we were doing in the 70s? Yeah. And, and I think it started with Rockin' in the Free World, didn't it? And then Ragged Glory follows on from that. And then he just becomes, in a sense, the sort of the, the sort of presiding animus or, or, or godfather of grunge yeah. in, the, in the early 90s. Yeah. And he tours with Pearl Jam and blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, and, and probably made his last great music in that I decade. So. But Ragged Glory it is a fabulous record. Yeah. Of course, and it's got the, the, the almighty fucking up on it. And I'm going to say that. I, I, ju- I just said loud it. Loud and proud. Yeah, I, I, I said it too. It's, it's just, it, it, when I was reading the quote, it's, it's a great, great record. So last piece, if I can find the thing to look at. Yeah, here we go. Pete Silverton interviewed Elvis's first love. This is uh, for The Observer in July 97. Pete had written a book about Elvis, but this is not part of it. A woman called June Juanico, or Juanico. And this is like 1956-57, and it was clearly kind of a fairly serious relationship. They never actually shagged, inverted commas. How do you know? But but they got very, very close to it, only to be interrupted by knocking on the door. She says, we had made love in our own special way every time we were together, but this was the first time we actually came close to physically having sex. Elvis was slowly and gently beginning to enter me when we heard a tap, tap, tap on the door. It was Elvis's mother, Gladys, suggesting contraception. And so the moment passes. Gladys's sly matter-of-factness washes away passion's hold on the young couple in a way it never returns. 
It's kind of it's, 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 it's a really sweet piece. This podcast turned triple X rated. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Well, it had to. We, we, we we're getting a kind of PG rating up to that <laughs> slowly entering. <laughs> it's a it's a really nice pick. It's Christ. a really nice piece. I mean, Pete Silverton, who's no longer writes, which is I think is great, great shape man. He's doing very well. He's got his own business and so on and so forth. But I, I've always really liked Pete's writing. He used to write for Sounds back in the day. Is that correct, Barney? Yeah. It's terrific, and this is this is this is just a really really nice piece. This woman sounds lovely. She's apparently she's got a, like, a smoker's voice and looking over her half moon specs. And he uh, Pete clearly re- really takes to June to to Aniko. It's, oh, it's, nice. it's it's lovely. That's that's my lot. I think ninety seven. So over to you guys, Jasper. Take it away, Ramsbottom. <laughs> <laughs> As my father used to say. <laughs> I'd like to start with the piece I added for 2000 from The Wire, which is Simon Reynolds writing a very long, it's like 5,000 word feature about roots uh-huh. reggae, where he sort of examines, you know, from a, quite an academic piece of writing about, you know, dub versus reggae and kind of exploring what differs between roots reggae and dub and why the sort of hip thing for a long time was dub rather than roots reggae and all this kind of thing. And also his own affinity for, he really scrutinizes his own affinity for reggae and dub. And in his terminology, why is this white man so interested (laughs) in music that doesn't, you know, raster music, you know, he's very much not a raster. What, What is it about this music that really captures him? And it's a really interesting piece. And it's also just a great piece of kind of pretty classic wire writing very academic and and interesting on that line just want to read a a paragraph the cultural studies slash rock against racism approach to reggae didn't ignore dub totally but it was never really able to integrate dub's topsy-turvy sonic overturnings with its stand up for your rights conception of reggae politics in neo-marxist academia and swp activist circles alike there's a certain uneasiness about drugs ganja is barely mentioned in hebdiger's 1987 sound system culture book cut and mix partly because of an anti-psychedelic premium on clear-minded rationality, and partly because linking black subcultures with drug use was felt to be dodgy, even crypto-racist. Sorry, can I just dive in there? I mean, having grown up through that precisely that time, I really struggled with inverted commas roots reggae because of the Rastafarianism, because of, you know, whilst I Mm, always mm. loved dub, because it's really not a lyrical music, even though you get interjections of, of, of singing. It's it's not about it's about soundscape and deeply a very druggy, very deeply yeah. psychedelic soundscape. Which, funny enough, I've always rather enjoyed. You can <laughs> weird. Who'd have thought? <laughs> even though you're now down to five cigarettes a day. That's right, ma'am. <laughs> but it's a really interesting piece. He kind of talks about dub and the Afrofuturism in dub and. Lee Scratch Perry, and he talks about all these different people that are involved in that scene and kind of why and what's going on. And, you know, it's interesting about Rastafarianism and the problems with Rastafarianism as well. And it's just, a, I mean, you know, if you're interested in anything kind of on that horizon, I would very sure. much recommend it as a read. It's, it's really a great piece of writing, great a, a really stuff. good essay. Anything else, Jasper? <laughs> Next up. A real, a real left turn, just because I, I thought it was funny. Papa Roach oh, God. <laughs> at the Astoria. Lisa Verico, poor thing, has to go and see them. But it opens with a funny, funny line. It was easy to spot the Papa Roach fans striding through Soho. They travelled in packs, mainly males, but with the odd tomboy babe, all sporting the same hip-hung baggy jeans, back-to-front baseball caps and short-sleeved XL-sized slogan T-shirts. 
They spread out across pavements, swung their arms by their sides, and didn't seem to notice that the temperature had dropped to near zero. Papa Roach were in town. It was time to act tough. (laughs) And I just think that's very funny. I mean, you know, Papa Roach are one of those rap metal groups that make an awful lot of noise, which is fairly awful. I think it's a sort of drift of it. But, you know, I also like the description of the, the lead singer, the stocky dick, a less tattooed Henry Rollins, though with a neck. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, Henry Rollins' neck is kind of, you know, legendary, the legendary neck of Henry yeah. Rollins. Mm. Excellent. Yeah. I actually saw Papa Roach in that very year, not from choice, <laughs> but because I, my middle son was in a sort of brief early adolescent metal phase and demanded to be taken to Ozfest. It was at Donington or something. So I, against my will, drove up to Donington with Fred Hoskins and <laughs> had to watch all these dreadful bands, including Slipknot and, well, even Black Sabbath with the headliners w- w- weren't great. But Papa Roach would just, I was like, what am I doing here? <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 you, what you do for, for per, per paternal love, right? Anyway, so there we go. Papa Roach, thank you. Cut my life into pieces. This is my last resort. Suffocation. Papa Roach, and in another left turn, Girls Aloud in 2002. (laughs) Caroline Sullivan writes a sort of comment about could Girls Aloud be the first girl band to matter since the Spice Girls? And sort of concludes, maybe? (laughs) And I mean, I think it's fair to say that Girls Aloud did matter, actually. I mean, not to me personally, but but as a girl band, I think they were they you know obviously were very successful and and they kind of did make that transition from TV program to to real pop stardom. And I think it's interesting because Karen Sullivan talks about the idea that maybe these TV programs are waning in popularity and waning in influence. In no way, of course, is the campaign an attempt to kick up interest in a format reality pop the music industry knows to be on its last legs. Notably, the BBC's Fame Academy final on Friday attracted only 6.9 million votes compared with 9 million for ITV's Pop Idol last spring. Now, that's interesting because it's 2002 and actually reality pop went from strength to strength throughout throughout the noughties. I mean, Simon Cowell's reign on pop music has only scarcely really ended. So, So that's kind of slightly off the mark, but interesting that it did obviously at one point look like reality pop might be coming to an end and then they found new ways of invigorating the format i hate the format personally but they did they did manage to create some really big you know big big pop stars indeed indeed i funny enough actually i i have a, a fondness for the girl groups of that period that i really never had for the boy bands the the, mm. the, the girl groups were capable of occasion generating a sort of some sort of I don't know what the word would be, but but a sort of a sense of themselves as girls enjoying doing what they're doing together. In a, you know, and and there was something really kind of quite straightforward and rather brilliant about that, including the Spice Girls. You know, I think for you all just their preferred faults. girls to boys, Mark. Well, possibly Barney, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> might I suggest? You may well suggest. <laughs> Oh. Oh, next up next up is Kate Tempest in 2014. Laura Barton in The Guardian writes a sort of charting the rise of Kate Tempest. And I, and I added this. I'm, I'm sure our colleague Paul will be happy to read. He's a big 
Tempest fan, and I think she's great too, actually. She's a sort of poet come rapper. I mean, really, she's a spoken word poet who who does her spoken word over music, and it's not really rap in that sense a lot of the time. But her words are very, very good, and she's she's done all sorts of things. She's written a play as well, I think, and and released just books of poetry, and she's really interesting and, and quite a powerful social commentator as well so i just think that's a nice Didn't thing Laura Barton likes something signed by he did he went to get a recent seven inch signed at banquet records when we were still allowed out of our homes oh that was so, a long time ago there you go a long time ago <laughs> it does feel like about it a does. year ago it does. even though it's been about two yeah. weeks of hardcore lockdown i know I, I somehow feel like we're still in february it feels like march didn't really happen Maybe so are. the fact that it's april is deeply disturbing to me but there you go just have you got anything else that's it from me. Well, that's, that's it. Dan, I think me. that's it from all of us. You know, good luck editing this dog's dinner of an episode. <laughs> Don't envy you. We've had sort of interruptions, leaf blowers. We've had bandwidth issues. We've had your microphone, had your microphone scrabbling against your chin. Against my stubble. Yep. But hopefully the listeners will hear none of that and they'll hear just a seamlessly put together episode of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm, I'm sure, Jasper. Don't let us down, fella. And the question remains, who's zooming who? Who's zooming who? Who's zooming who? When the fish jumped out the curb, didn't I bet? Who's zooming who? Yeah. So, Mark, talk us out. We're going to hear the final yeah. instalment from the Zevon audio. That, that's right. This, this is where he's talking about his and Jackson Brown's fondness for Rilke, among other things. It's just, yes. it's just him talking about him and Jackson Brown. It's great fun. Super. Well, we'll hopefully see you next week for another episode remotely, perhaps with a guest or not. I can't remember. I mean, you know, given that we've been in sort of virus mode, I think all our guests we had lined up probably assumed that they wouldn't be coming on our show. (laughs) Uh, But I will be getting back in touch to suggest that they do join us through the miracles of technology. And so hopefully we will be able to resume normal service. Let's just see how this episode works out. (laughs) Uh, Well, thanks for this. (laughs) No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> but listen, thanks for joining yes. us. It's good to be back. Thank you very much. And, um, we will see you next week. Uh, keep the phone. Yeah, keep safe, keep well. Look after yourselves, everyone. Yeah. Keep keep locked down and keep healthy. See you next week. Bye. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Talking about Jackson Brown, I mean, he would always seem. I mean, he's written songs about death, obviously, for a long time. Yes, he has. But he would seem to be not kind of as dark and a kind of complex character as as you on the face of it. Jackson? Is he very dark and complicated? I was thinking of him as a kind of an LA type of guy, you know. Jackson Brown? Mm. I think of me as kind of an LA kind of guy. (laughs) Really? Maybe it's just. um, Maybe I'm just wrong. funny we were backstage of my show in LA a month ago yeah. and uh, he picked up a book of mine from the coffee table that I just bought in Vegas a book of uh, obscure Rilke he said oh you're reading Rilke I said yeah didn't I used to read it when like we started out and he chuckled and said I don't remember exactly what you were reading when we you know were kids and then I thought about it and remembered oh no it was him who read Rilke <laughs> I called him from somewhere and he was in Timbuktu and I said, no, no, it all came back to me. You were the one who read Rilke.
That was Warren Zevon in conversation with Adam Sweeting in 2000, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rock's Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. I've lost you. Oh, you've gone. Fuck. Hang on. Mark, we've lost Barney. Have we? Yeah, he's disappeared. Hello? Oh, I can hear him. Hello? Chaps, are you there? But we can't see yes. you, Barney. Can you okay. hear me? Sorry about that. I'm really... Are you there? Oh, fuck. <laughs>